Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is The Norman Invasion, Part 23, The Conquered Lands. In the last three previous shows, we have looked at the invasion in Munster, Connacht and Ulster in the 1190s and early 1200s, respectively. Now we are turning to life in the Conquered Lands. We will look at what the Normans did with the territories they conquered, how they changed life and what it was like to live through these times. The changes were profound. Indeed, within 50 years of Strongbow's arrival in 1170, the landscape, its people and settlements were almost unrecognisable. To give you some sort of an insight into this process, I'm going to focus exclusively on one area. That's the Kingdom of Ossory, which by around the year 1200 had become the Norman County of Kilkenny. To begin then, we need to look at Kilkenny, or as it was, Ossory, on the eve of the Norman invasion, and what happened during the early stages after the Normans arrived. Modern County Kilkenny in the southeast of Ireland did not exist prior to the arrival of the Normans. However, it roughly corresponded to a Gaelic-Irish kingdom called Ossory. Ossory was slightly larger than Kilkenny, stretching north into modern-day Leash, encompassing the barony of Ahabo. This territory covered around 600,000 acres of land. Now in the hyper-competitive world of Gaelic Ireland, prior to the Norman conquest, Ossory occupied a precarious position. To the east lay the Kingdom of Leinster, which began to grow in power in the later 11th century, while to the west lay the Munster kingdoms of Thomond and Desmond. Sandwiched between these major players, Ossory had little by way of natural defences. While the River Barrow, which snaked south along its eastern borders, did give the region some protection from Leinster, there was little to stop the kings of Munster sweeping in. The one advantage lay in the fact that the kingdom, judging on contemporary accounts, was heavily forested. Despite their lack of natural defences, Ossory nevertheless emerged as an unlikely power in Ireland by the 10th century as many smaller kingdoms were subsumed by the emerging major forces of Thomond, Desmond, Leinster, Mead and Connacht, 
Osri more or less held their own and remained autonomous. Nevertheless, this autonomy came at a price. Both the kings of Leinster and Munster both saw the region as theirs, leading to widespread and frequent conflict. This was also the era when Viking raids swept across Ireland. However, there's little evidence that they had any lasting impact on daily life in Ossery. Sure enough, there were raids up the Nore River, the main waterway through the kingdom, but the Norse did not seize any major territories. However, by the late 10th century, they had established a town at Waterford, on the southern frontier of Ossery. This was the biggest urban centre in the region. Indeed, within Ossery itself, like most Gaelic kingdoms of the time, there were few settlements of note. Kilkenny, in the centre of Ossery, was a small town built around a monastery founded by St. Kieran way back in the 6th century. The monastery occupied a rocky escarpment that overlooked the Nore River. Small as it was by the 11th century, it was emerging as a key location in Ireland. Around 1100, the Fitzpatrick kings of Ossery had made it their seat of power. Nevertheless, Kilkenny had a tiny population by modern standards, with no more than a few hundred people living there. The other notable settlement in the Kingdom of Ossery was Ahabo, in the far north, which had also grown up around a monastery. It was in Ahabo and not Kilkenny, where the bishops of Ossery had their residence on the eve of the Norman invasion. Now, outside these two small towns, most people in Ossery lived in relatively isolated farmsteads. Indeed, some were still living in the thousands of ring forts that pockmark the landscape today, although these were being abandoned around this time. After the year 1100, the people of Ossery faced an increasing menace to their east in the form of the ever-powerful Kingdom of Leinster. There, the McMurrah family, based on the east bank of the River Barrow, emerged as a major player. In 1132, the expansionist and aggressive Dermid McMurrah assumed the kingship of Leinster and decades of warfare between Ossery and their neighbour broke out. By the 1160s, the McMurras had risen to great heights, being the principal ally of the High King, Morkathoc McLaughlin. However, in 1166, McLaughlin was murdered and McMurra's fall was spectacular as he was deposed from power within weeks. This was great news for the Fitzpatrick kings of Ossery, who could now exact vengeance on their old rival. Indeed, when McMurrah was deposed and forced into exile by an alliance led by the new High King, Rory O'Connor, the Fitzpatricks received a huge chunk of territory from the Kingdom of Leinster, which was broken up. However, in the following year of 1167, Dermot McMurrah returned from exile. He had pledged to reward Norman mercenaries with land, and he was accompanied by an advance guard led by Robert Fitzgodbert. Ireland was changing, although none could have foreseen just how much. McMurrah's enemies across Ireland were quick to attack him after his return, and indeed the first Norman blood in Ireland was spilled in two minor skirmishes around Kells in Ossery. Vastly outnumbered, McMurrah and his Normans were quickly defeated. Fitzgodbert, realising that winning land in Ireland wouldn't be easy, quickly left and returned home to Wales. Therefore, Ossery's first interaction with the Normans had been positive. Building on this, the King of Ossery, Donacha Fitzpatrick, now continued to exact revenge from the McMurras when he blinded Diarmid MacMurra's son Aena 
1168. This was a very unwise move. In 1169, a much more substantial force of Normans arrived under the leadership of Robert Fitzstephen to support MacMurray, and they were a game-changer. Ossery now became a crucial battleground in the early stages of what would develop into the Norman invasion. MacMurray was eager for revenge on the people who had blinded his son, and he was quick to turn his Norman mercenaries against the Fitzpatricks. MacMurray, an astute and clever man, though, would not be drawn into the deep forests of Ossery that would render the Norman military advantage, their heavy cavalry, useless. Instead, the Normans advanced, and when confronted, they feigned a retreat, drawing the Fitzpatrick forces into open country. There, in what was a stark warning for the future, the Normans rode down the Ossery men. However, the Fitzpatricks would not submit easily, and another attempt by MacMurray to penetrate Ossery later that year also failed. But no one could deny these Normans, clad in their chainmail, were not your average mercenary. This was proven beyond any doubt in the year 1170. In August, that man who would lead the Norman invasion of Ireland, Strongbow, landed just south of Ossery at the town of Waterford with an army of over 1,200 men. In an awesome yet terrifying display of power, two days later, he stormed the walls of Waterford and violently took the city by siege. A few weeks later, he set out to take Dublin, the most important town in Ireland. While he almost certainly passed through southern Ossery, the Fitzpatricks were not foolish enough to offer him resistance. When scouts would have reported back this military power moving north, numbering well over a thousand men, Surely some people began to realise uncertain times lay ahead, but none could have foreseen just what was on the cards. Ossery, like most of the East, was on the verge of a biblical annihilation and transformation. Not long after the arrival of Strongbow in August 1170, events in Ireland began to move rapidly. In May 1171, Dermot MacMurray, the man who had invited the Normans to Ireland, died of natural causes. Strongbow, the Norman leader, having married MacMurray's daughter Aoife, replaced him not as King of Leinster, but instead as Norman Lord of Leinster. The Normans now had a foothold on the doorstep of Ossery. This was only the beginning. In October 1171, the largest army ever assembled in Ireland to that date, landed in Waterford, led by the Norman king himself, Henry II. Opposing this would have been suicidal, and Donica Fitzpatrick, the king of Ossery, was probably among the first group of kings to submit to Henry when he landed at Waterford. However, this didn't appease the Norman king, and before he left Ireland, some months later, he reaffirmed Strongbow's position as Lord of Leinster, with one key difference. Norman Leinster now incorporated the Kingdom of Ossery. Strongbow could do as he liked, and the Normans did not see the Fitzpatricks as being part of their long-term plan. Indeed, the Normans and Strongbow had grand plans for their territories in Ireland. They would not rule over them like the Gaelic kings of old had. Instead, they planned to transform all lands they conquered and reshape them like the societies they had left in England, Wales and Normandy. This would be a painful process for many. Firstly, 
Strongbow began to take measures to secure Ossery. This saw him make the initial grants of land in the kingdom to Normans, who in turn would be expected to subdue Ossery and its people. No consideration was given for the Gaelic Irish who had lived there for centuries. These early grants saw the barony of Iverk, the southern tip of Ossery, granted to Milo Fitzdavid. This was very important for the Normans as it secured the territories to the north of Waterford, a very important port. His next move was to secure the far north of Ossery, at Ahabo, where the bishop of the region lived. These lands in the shadow of the foothills of the Schlieve-Bloom Mountains were granted to Adam de Hereford. This was followed up by another grant in the early 1170s which saw Nochtofer given to Griffin Fitzwilliam. Now he was a brother of Strongbow's son-in-law, Raymond Legros, who you may remember from the early parts of the series. It's almost certain that at this stage, these men were only acting as military overlords, given the region was a lawless frontier between the Normans in Leinster and the powerful Gaelic kingdoms in Munster. The Normans were also massively outnumbered at this point, so it's hard to conceive how they could have tried to actually change the economy and introduced Norman farming methods. These early grants left a huge tract of land also in the middle of Ossery that was still in the hands of the Fitzpatricks. This underlined a major problem for the Normans. They had arrived in Ireland in 1170 and within a few years had captured more territory than they knew what to do with. Strongbow, for example, had taken what amounted to be millions of acres of land in Leinster and Ossery and ruling this was difficult to say the least. It was clear that this conquest would take decades. Therefore, much of Austria, even though theoretically in Norman hands, was devoid of any Norman presence. Nevertheless, the Norman conquerors were quick to spot the importance of the settlement of Kilkenny itself. Not only was it one of the few settlements in Austria, but it strategically overlooked two crossing points on the River Nore. By 1173, Strongbow planned to dominate this settlement with a castle, However, the Christian monastery of St. Canis's stood on the ideal site for a fortification. The rocky outcrop on which the monastery was located dominated the landscape for miles around. Had it been anything other than a monastery, the Normans could have built over it, but committing an act of sacrilege like this was out of the question. Instead, they chose a site a kilometre to the south where they erected the first Norman castle at Kilkenny, on high ground overlooking the river in 1173. This early Norman castle, given the speed at which it was built, was almost certainly a modern bailey structure of earth and timber. However, it was now very isolated, more or less half a day's ride from any other Norman settlement. For the garrison, life at Kilkenny was dangerous. Every sound in the surrounding forests surely put them on edge. Indeed, this castle didn't last very long. In 1174, the Fitzpatricks destroyed it. This attack was significant, however, in ways that few at the time could have foreseen, as it was one of the last major acts of resistance, as the Normans were increasingly strengthening their grip over Ossery with each passing year. That said, in 1176, the entire development and plans for Ossery ground to a sudden halt. 
In this new Norman Ireland, all power was invested in the person of the lord of a given region, and in 1176, all the grand plans to develop Leinster and Ossery stopped when Strongbow died in Dublin. His heir was his son Gilbert, who was too young to succeed his father, and the entire lordship was placed in the king's hand. This saw royal officials take responsibility for the development of Leinster, and importantly for our story, Ossery. Notorious for their poor management, these royal officials appear to have done little. That said, there were a few notable fortifications built just to secure the land. In 1186, as we saw in previous shows, Hugh de Lacey, the Lord of Meath, was assassinated at a castle being built at Freshford in the northwest of the region, while another castle was built at the Abbey of Ahabo. While land grants were few in these years, there were some notable exceptions. In 1177, King Henry II gave territory surrounding Kells in Ossery to Roger Le Poire. His descendants would become one of the most important landowners in the region in the following centuries. Indeed, the name Le Poire is still prominent in Kilkenny today in the name Power. Some years later, in 1185, Prince John arrived in Ireland, having been appointed Lord of the Island by his father Henry II. While the visit, as we saw in part 18 of the series, was an unmitigated disaster with the prince leaving the island within a few months. This wasn't though before he had made one of the most significant grants in the history of Kilkenny. He gave most of the barony of Oscolan, around modern day Gorn in eastern Ossery, to one of his close associates, Theobald Walter. Theobald was the patriarch of the Butler family, who in 1328 gained the title Earl of Ormond and in 1391 became Lords of much of Kilkenny. Indeed, this family, the Butlers, resided in Kilkenny Castle remarkably until 1935. However, it was the 1190s that proved to be the most decisive in terms of the development of Norman Ossery and indeed wider Kilkenny. Not long after his father's death, Strongbow's son and heir Gilbert also died leaving Strongbow's daughter, Isabel, as the sole heir. In 1189, she married William Marshall, an increasingly influential knight at the royal court, and within three years, they were given control of Isabel's family lands in Ireland. This had a profound impact, not only in Ossery, but also Leinster, as they took quite a hands-on approach. One of their first acts was to break what had been the kingdoms of Leinster and Ossery into more manageable blocks of land. It did, after all, encompass several million acres of land. This saw the creation of four administrative units. Leinster was broken into Wexford, Carlow and Kildare, all of which survive as modern counties. Ossery became the county of Kilkenny. This was a clear breach with the Gaelic past, as the name Ossery now was consigned to history. In the following decade, the complete transformation of Kilkenny and indeed the wider lordship of Leinster began to take place, reflective of a process which would take hold over much of Ireland in the decades before 1270. Firstly, all political opposition was eliminated and around this time the Fitzpatricks were driven from their lands in central Ossery up into upper Ossery. This cleared the way for a wholesale Norman takeover of Kilkenny. While William Marshall and his wife Isabel the daughter of Strongbow, did not come to Ireland. They did carefully manage their estates. This saw dozens of Norman families given territory. Among these were some significant arrivals. 
in North Kilkenny, the Deval, Frayne and Purcell families took control of the region. Meanwhile, in South Kilkenny, the Grace and St. Aubin or Tobin families were granted lands. These, however, were relatively minor players compared with the two major landowners, these being William Marshall himself and the Bishop of Ossory. Marshall retained around one-sixth of County Kilkenny, totalling 100,000 acres of land for himself. These were territories his family would directly rule as landlord. The other major landowner was the Bishop of Ossory, who held 47,000 acres of land. One other significant landowner deserving a mention in this new Norman society was the numerous religious orders who had abbeys and priories across the county. The Augustinian, Cistercian, Knights Templar and Carmelites, amongst others, had several religious houses which were accompanied by significant tracts of land. These grants of land, however, were only the beginning. Through the following years until his death in 1219, William Marshall transformed what had been the Kingdom of Ossory into a society modelled on Norman England. The change was phenomenal and gained pace when Marshall himself arrived in Ireland in 1200. But before I go into this, I want to take a quick break. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. 
The visit of William and Isabel Marshall to Ireland in 1200 saw the most important town in terms of medieval Kilkenny and arguably in terms of medieval Ireland develop. This was not actually in Kilkenny but instead just outside the county. On a greenfield site on the east bank of the River Barrow, Marshall planned a new town, a mile from Ross. This settlement, called New Ross, would become the greatest Norman success in Ireland and by the late 13th century would be one of the busiest ports in Ireland or Britain. Nearly all goods exported from medieval Kilkenny would pass through New Ross. In a second visit to Ireland in 1207, Marshall took a crucial step to further develop the town of Kilkenny as a central defensive point and major settlement in the county. While the work of developing the town was already underway in 1207, Marshall granted a charter giving substantial rights for merchants to trade there. This included wide-ranging powers to govern their own affairs and obviously helped attract merchants and business to the town. Around this time, work also began on a new massive fortification that would become the centre of the region, Kilkenny Castle. This four-sided castle with drum towers on each corner dominated the landscape. Today it has a strange three-sided appearance given one side was blown off in a siege in the 17th century. A kilometre to the north, the monastery, which had been the focal point of life since the 6th century, was also transformed. There, a massive cathedral, which would become the second largest in Ireland, was constructed. For someone who could remember Ossery prior to 1170, these changes must have been phenomenal. Nothing like this cathedral or the castle had existed. Through these works, the settlement of Kilkenny was one of the major successes in Marshall's lordship of Leinster. Indeed, as early as 1202, the town had already spread across the River Nore to the east bank, where the Augustinian Order established the Priory of St. John's, around which a suburb developed. It was there Kilkenny's first hospital was built to treat the town's lepers a few decades later. Kilkenny's success could also be seen in the numerous other religious orders attracted to the town. In 1231, work began on St. Francis's Priory, the Franciscan Foundation, a few years earlier, the Dominican Black Abbey was begun to the west of this site. Both Franciscans and Dominicans were dependent on the town's population for arms, so this indicated the wealth the town's merchants were generating. While the remnants of the walls are one of the most iconic reminders of Kilkenny's medieval past, William Marshall made no attempt to build such defences in the early 13th century. Perhaps earthen banks defended Kilkenny Although few towns in Leinster appear to have had any major defences at this point, indicating that by 1200 all major Gaelic opposition had been eliminated. Now while Norman Kilkenny may have been the most impressive settlement, the vast majority of the population lived in rural hamlets spread across the county, where the impact of the Norman conquest was no less dramatic. Norman farming practices were dramatically different to those among the Gaelic Irish who had relied heavily on large cattle herds. The Normans desired to intensively farm their new colonies with crops and the landscape was dramatically altered to suit this purpose. The county of Kilkenny was divided into manors, the medieval equivalent of farms, but these were enormous, often stretching over thousands of acres. Judging on contemporary accounts, the Gaelic Kingdom of Ossery had been heavily forested prior to the conquest. 
Therefore, one of the first tasks the Normans carried out was to scour this landscape of trees. Then farming could begin. This was implemented by a structure of chief tenants, sub-tenants and labourers. To explain the often complex structure of rural life in Norman Ireland, it's worth looking at one place in particular, that is the manor or farm of Danes Fort. Today Danes Fort is a rural region just south of Kilkenny City, but in the late Middle Ages there was a sizeable settlement in the area, now gone, while the manor or farm encompassed thousands of acres of land surrounding this settlement. After the Norman conquest, the Lords of Leinster kept Danes Fort for themselves, and it was their officials that farmed about 700 acres of the land directly. From accounts produced in 1307, we know that two-thirds of this was sown with wheat and oats, while a final third was left fallow. This was standard farming techniques of the time, to allow one-third of the land lie fallow, and this allowed the land to recover. Indeed, this recovery period, by allowing it to lie fallow, was very important, because at Danes Fort in 1307, 250 acres had already been overworked and now lay barren and useless. The rest of the land on the manor was rented out to several other sub-tenants of varying types. The most wealthy were known as farmers who rented substantial tracts of land of well over 100 acres. Beneath them were free tenants. They rented lands of varying size. So at Danes Fort in 1307, the smallest free tenant, William de Granger, rented eight acres, the largest, being a collective of townspeople from Danes Fort, rented about 500 acres of land. These were called free tenants because they did not owe labour service to the Lord. They were, in essence, free. The lowest people on the rung at Danes Fort were cottiers. Now, as their name suggests, they just rented cottages. These would vary in size and sometimes they might have small parcels of land attached. The cottiers usually paid their rent partly in money and partly in labour or work meaning that each year they had to work on the lands owned by their lord, in this case William Marshall. In some areas there was an even lower position than Cotier. While there were none at Danes Fort, in the nearby manor of Callan, about 250 acres of land was held by what were called Bethas. Now Bethas were Gaelic serfs who held land in common, often living in extended family groups. Now they appear to have come with the land at the time of conquest, having occupied an almost identical status prior to the invasion. While towns and buildings totally altered the landscape, this process of transformation inevitably meant there was going to be winners and losers. And next I'm going to look at the fortunes of those who lived through this massive change. The impact of the Norman invasion on the people who lived in Ireland through these years of change was very much mixed. There were clear winners and clear losers and then a lot of people who lay somewhere in between. Clearly those who gained most were the Norman lords. Take Strongbow for example, whose life had reached a political dead end in Wales before the invasion. He now became the lord of millions of acres of prime land in Ireland. His noble supporters who came with him also did pretty well, receiving substantial tracts of land and the promise of future conquests in Ireland. Another great beneficiary of the invasion were the large numbers of Norman settlers, many of whom were relatively poor, who followed Strongbow to Ireland. They left lands in England and Wales, moving their lives wholesale to Ireland. 
Indeed, a simple look at surnames in Kilkenny, such as Welsh or Walsh, or the place name Welsh Mountain, would indicate they settled in large numbers in the area. This name, Welsh or Walsh in particular, points to their place of origin, Wales. In Ireland, they continued their lives as labourers, tied to lords, renting land which was paid for in labour, but things did improve for them. While leaving England and Wales was risky, working conditions in Ireland were better. In England, they often had to perform up to 100 labour days each year for their land, whereas in Ireland this was often 10 or less, leaving them far more free time. Now clearly there was also great losers. For example, the Fitzpatrick family, the one-time kings of Ossery, were forced into the poor uplands of Upper Ossery, losing their ancestral home. The fate of the serfs and bethes of Gaelic society is more complex still. While they suffered undoubtedly in the turmoil of the invasion, that's without doubt, it's not clear how much their lives changed once the Norman colony bedded in. The Normans allowed them to continue living in their extended family groups and made little attempt to change their way of life. While they had no legal rights to speak of, they had had none prior to the invasion anyway. I suppose one could say that their life was unchanging in that it remained difficult at the bottom of medieval society. While this podcast has presented a view of medieval society in Kilkenny after the invasion, much of Leinster and Mead endured a similar process. While the specifics would vary from place to place, influenced by local factors and the particular ruling families, the Normans eviscerated the society that had existed prior to their arrival in 1170. This was perhaps one of the most profound single changes ever to take place in Irish history. Life would never be the same again. As I mentioned earlier, over the next five to six weeks, I am taking a break from the Norman Invasion series. Instead, I'm going to focus on a three or four part series on a fascinating story that few of you would have ever heard. This is the story of Castlecomer, a town I grew up in, which was one of the few coal mining towns in Ireland. This town was the scene of a continuous struggle over generations as coal miners battled against a mining company to improve the dangerous, horrific conditions they worked in. It is at times an unbelievable tale of assassinations, kidnapping and demonstrations intertwined with some of the most famous chapters in Irish history from the 1798 rebellion to the famine to the War of Independence. The first part of this history will be out in two weeks. So until then... Sloan. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 